Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, I have sinned against against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, Welcome to the Painted Door. My name is Mark. If you're new, you'll forgive me today. I was playing Frisbee with my sons yesterday and seemed to have pinched something in my back, so I can't quite stand up straight. I'm a little bit tilted this direction. I thought about just trying to play it off, you know, maybe just preach like that, but... Uh, I figured I'd just come clean. Uh, It's good to be here uh, with you this morning. My wife and I were in California last Sunday. Uh, We were actually attending a memorial service for our brother-in-law, and it was a sweet and beautiful time of healing and remembrance. So we're very thankful for that time we were able to have there in California with our family. Also thankful to be back uh, here now with all of you. And I've heard through the grapevine that Pastor Kirk took the opportunity of getting to preach to mention at the outset, or to claim at least at the outset, that he is uh, better looking than me. Um, Of course, said when I was not present to defend myself, well, now I'm back. And I have the microphone in hand, 
So I thought I would just take a brief moment to uh, set the record straight. Kirk, no doubt, we all know, is a beautiful man. Uh, the silver fox with flowing gray locks. Uh, but I knew Kirk when. <laughs> I knew Kirk when he and Karen were just having their first child, Sigrid. This is more than a decade ago. And I can report to you that Kirk in those years was far more attractive than he is today. <laughs> Not just because he was 10 years younger, but because he had a man bun. It was a thing of beauty. Uh, and so I want to just lay down a challenge here and now today that should Kirk begin to sport the man bun again, I will relinquish my crown as the best-looking preacher at the painted door. But until then, this Viking albino reigns supreme. (laughs) Speaking of reigning supreme, on to Jesus. (laughs) See what I did there? Um, Our church, the painted door, is an expression of Jesus. Okay, we get our life from Jesus. That means that the very blood of Jesus courses through our veins. The very body of Jesus sustains us. Every good and perfect deed that comes from the hands and feet of our church body is from the hands and feet of Jesus. Every act of love, every act of charity, every bit of forgiveness, every bit of humility, all of those things are a manifestation of Christ in us. They're Christ breaking out of us, the very life and person of Jesus manifesting himself in our members. Likewise, every bit, every act of hate that comes out of us, every bit of greed, every bit of ego, every act of resentment or holding on to of resentment, all of those things likewise are swallowed up in Jesus. That is to say, Jesus defines all of us. He defines our successes. He defines our failures. He takes credit for every bit of us, the good and the evil. It all is on him. It all is in him. He has taken responsibility for all of it. He owns all of it. That is to say, we have no right any longer as a church to take credit for our good deeds, and we have no right any longer as a church to take credit for our misdeeds. None of it belongs to us. It's all in him, all owned by him. His life defines us. He defines us. This is why when we go to begin thinking about our church values, about what are those things that are at the center of the heart and mission of our local church body, we do that by looking to Jesus. We do that by looking at Jesus. What was at the center of the heart of Jesus? What is it that Jesus cares most about? What is it that he devoted his time to? What mission was he on when he came into the earth? And when we look to Jesus, we learn quite quickly. We hear from him that 
He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order to save it. And the question then arises, what was he saving this world from? What was this salvation, this rescue mission Jesus was on about? What was he rescuing us out of? Well, there have only ever been two fundamental problems in our world. We're all familiar with these two problems. Every problem we've ever faced, in fact, could fit in one of these two categories. And those two problems are sin and suffering. Jesus came into the world to rescue the world from sin and suffering. He came into the world to address these problems, these chronic problems of sin and suffering. Only he did not accomplish this rescue. He did not carry out this rescue in the way that you or I would have. Were I to concoct a plan to rescue the world out of sin and suffering, I would not declare mission accomplished until there was no more sin or suffering. My mission, my agenda, would be to reduce the amount of sin and suffering, indeed to eliminate sin and suffering. But Jesus came into the world, lived his life, and when he was dying on the cross, declared, it is finished, declared mission accomplished. He then went into the grave, rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven, and look around. Sin and suffering rage everywhere. There has been no reduction in sin since the completed work of Jesus. And there has been no reduction in suffering since the completed work of Jesus. So in what sense, then, can we possibly say that Jesus brought salvation to the world? In what way can we say that he rescued us from sin and suffering, that he addressed this brokenness in our world? Well, like I said, he did not address it in the way that you or I would go about addressing it. When it comes to sin, rather than being on a mission to reduce sin or eliminate sin per se, Jesus came into the world and forgave sin. And he counted that forgiveness as a true and present rescue from the power of sin. Likewise, suffering. Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection, did not reduce the suffering in the world. Rather, he joined us in it. He entered into the suffering of the world. He practiced compassion, calm with, passio, suffer. He suffered with us and counted that a real and present rescue in some mysterious way from the power of suffering. Jesus planted the seeds of divine forgiveness and divine compassion in the world, seeds that we no doubt believe and hope will spring up into a new heavens and a new earth. 
the seeds of compassion and forgiveness will one day yield a world where there is no more sin or suffering. But here in the present hour, they are seeds hidden in the broken soil, hidden in the ground of this garden, as it were, the dust of this world, growing up oftentimes unseen by us in the dust of this world. Forgiveness and compassion were the values of the mission and salvation of Jesus. And therefore, when we think about our values as a church, about how we locate ourselves in history, what we give ourselves to, it is this same planting of the divine seeds of forgiveness and compassion. It is the life and ministry of Jesus breaking out in us, in forgiving of sin and in entering into suffering with people, sitting in pain with those who hurt, joining those in their sorrow, weeping with those who weep. These are the values of the painted door, forgiveness and compassion. And of late, we've been listening to the parables of Jesus wherein he is ministering this sort of forgiveness and compassion through his teaching ministry. Really, the parables of Jesus are all about forgiveness and compassion. They are all about this kingdom of God being planted here in and among the kingdoms of this earth. This kingdom of God overlooked as it often is, slowly beginning to lap up onto the shore of this broken world. And it just so happens that the two most famous parables of Jesus address explicitly these ministries of forgiveness and compassion. The two most famous parables of Jesus, of course, the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. And so seeing how it is that every fall, as we come back into more normal rhythms of life and want to reorient ourselves as a church, want to remind one another of what it is that we value, of what it is that we are engaged in as we participate in the life of Jesus together, it seems only fitting to look at these two parables over the next two weeks and be reminded of forgiveness and compassion. The prodigal son deals primarily with forgiveness. The good Samaritan that we'll look at next week deals primarily with compassion. And so, without further ado, we move into the parable of the prodigal son for this week, one of the central defining parables of the preaching and teaching ministry of Jesus. We read this parable in its entirety just a moment ago at the outset. It's a familiar parable. I want to highlight three particular aspects of the parable of the prodigal son, and then we're done. First aspect I want to highlight in this parable is the indiscriminate generosity of the father. The indiscriminate generosity of the father. The second aspect I want to highlight is the transactional impulse of the two sons. This impulse in the two sons to operate in a transactional way. 
And then the third aspect I want to highlight is the collision that takes place between these two ways of being. Okay, the indiscriminate generosity of the father, the transactional impulse of the two sons, and then the collision that takes place between these two ways of being. So first, the indiscriminate generosity of the father. Well, you'll remember how the parable begins. The younger of the two sons comes to his father and asks him if he might receive his inheritance early. Now, an inheritance is not given until the preceding generation has passed away, and for very good reason. This young son is coming to his father and in essence saying, I want my inheritance now. In other words, would you just drop dead? Would you just give me what I'm going to get once you're dead now? And how does the father respond? He immediately divides all that he has, his entire estate, between his two sons and gives away the entirety of their inheritances now while he is still living. This would render this father now a beggar. He now has nothing to his name. He has given away his entire livelihood. He has become nothing to give his sons everything. This is not wise behavior. This is not well thought through. This is lavish, extravagant looniness to give away the entirety of your estate to your children while you yet have years to live, yet need an income, yet need a livelihood, need an estate in order to provide for your own needs. This kind of generosity is absolute foolishness according to every standard that we apply in our world. If your parents try to give you all that they have before they have passed on, I'd recommend declining. That's not going to work out well. Now, the second aspect here to point out, the transactional impulse of the two sons. We looked at the extravagant, indiscriminate generosity of the father. The transactional impulse of the two sons stands in stark contrast to that way of their father. These sons are much more clever than their father. They are not dupes like their father. These sons know that in our world, the way things work is that in order to get something of value, you must give something of value. The way that our world works is transactional. That everything in our world has value, and these things, these goods, these services are exchanged according to that value, according to their merit. People receive what it is that they deserve. That's actually what makes the world go around. That's what makes our economy function. That's what makes our interpersonal contracts function. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. 
This is the way that the world works. And so we see the sons operating in this transactional way. The younger son, when he comes before his father, he doesn't come to his dad and say, can I have some money? No, he goes before his father and says, would you give me what's coming to me? He goes before his father and he claims his rights. He asks for what it is that he actually deserves on the basis of his merit as a son. Sons of their father have a right to that inheritance. This son, albeit a little bit early, is asking according to what he deserves. He's asking his father to treat him according to what he deserves. He's operating with his father in a transactional way. And you know the story that he then takes that inheritance and runs off and squeezes every last drop of self-benefit for himself that he can. He spends the money on booze and prostitutes. Extravagant living is the translation that we have here. Lavish living, wild living. This is actually where we get the name of this parable, the prodigal son. Prodigal just means extravagant. The son was spending his money in an extravagant way. He was living it up. Clubs, champagne, the whole bit. And when all the money had run out, or just as it was beginning to run out, a terrible famine came into the land, such that this son no longer had any of his inheritance to live on, nor could he find decent work to live on, and he was reduced to this place of desperate destitution where he had to take a job feeding pigs. And before he could even work long enough to have his first payday, when he was still hungry and at his wit's end, he found himself feeling jealous of the food that the pigs were eating. He was at his wit's end. He was at rock bottom. And yet, even so, this experience of being driven to rock bottom did not change him one bit. This young son continues to think and live according to that transactional mindset that defines us all. When he'd first approached his father, he'd asked for his inheritance on the basis of that kind of transactional mindset, asked for what it is that he deserves. Now here at his wit's end in this desperate and destitute place, he begins to scheme in his mind for how he might leverage his current state for a better station in life yet again. He recognizes that now he has less capital to work with. He's no longer this worthy son that has a right to his father's inheritance. But he starts to scheme about what it is that he may yet have a right to. What it is that he could yet lay claim to. And we read this in Luke 15. When he came to himself, he said... How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This younger son 
begins to scheme for how it is that he might trade up from being a pig feeder, jealous of the food of pigs, and get himself into a station of life where he would live in his father's servants' quarters and at least eat a decent meal, at least have the bread of a servant, at least not be in this terribly destitute and hungry, even starving position that he finds himself in now. His thought process is this. If I can repent well enough, if I can apologize well enough, perhaps my father will reward me by treating me at least as well as he treats his servants. He's still in this transactional mindset, still believing that he must pay something of value in order to receive something of value. Nothing really has changed in his heart. He knows he's forfeited the right to sonship, but with a good enough apology, maybe he can earn servanthood. Okay, what about the older brother? The other brother. His transactional mindset. The older brother, we discover later in the parable, thinks in the exact same way as the younger brother, only in a different direction. He operates with the same kind of transactional mindset that something must be given in order to receive, that everything in life must be earned, that we should always be treated as we deserve, and therefore we always need to prove our merit or our value or our worthiness in order to receive something good. We see this same mindset playing out in the older brother in the other direction. He gets all bent out of shape when he sees his father wind up throwing a party for his destitute little brother. And the older brother says this, in verse 28 of Luke 15, it says he was angry and refused to go in to the party. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Okay, you hear, hear the same transactional thinking just in the other direction. He's saying, I have paid you more than enough. I have been a faithful son. I have proved my merit to you. I deserve a celebration. I deserve your, your commendation. I deserve to be honored. If anyone should have a party in their honor, clearly it should be me and not my little brother. Both brothers, I hope you can see, are quite the same. They are both leveraging what they have to make a deal that will suit them the best they believe they can be suited. They're both trying to squeeze as much dessert out of their merit as is possible. This is us, isn't it? This is where you and I live, in this kind of transactional mindset. This is what defines the kingdoms of our world. This is what defines where it is that we live. 
This is how everything works in our life. It only seems to make sense that we should be treated according to what we deserve. That's why we get so bent out of shape when the wrong person in our workplace is promoted. The person who does not deserve it. Even if we're not convinced that the right person or the deserving person is ourselves, we still are bent out of shape if the wrong person is promoted, if some other coworker deserved it more than they did, ought to have been at the front of the line. It irks us. It bothers us. This is why it drives us nuts when a professor that we have grades us more poorly than we think is deserving. For sure, we've put in the work. We've earned better. It's terrible to receive a grade that you don't deserve, especially when it's inferior to the one that you're sure you deserve. This is why we're driven crazy when our giftings or our abilities are maybe overlooked in our church or in our community. Why am I not being given opportunity? I have this merit. I have this value. Doesn't that earn me a right to use it in some way? We want what we have a right to. That seems only fair. And likewise, when someone wrongs us, we want restitution. We want it to be made right. That all seems only fair. What this parable is about is a collision between that way of living, the way of the two brothers, the way of all of us, and the way of the Father. It's a collision between that transactional impulse and the kind of indiscriminate generosity and forgiveness of the Father. This is the third aspect that we will highlight. We see the first collision of these two ways with the younger son. The younger son who has schemed to come home and apologize well and earn his way at least back into servant quarters and a decent meal. He comes ready to make that deal. And we read in verse 20, He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What a scene. This son comes home with a practiced apology. Ready to curry some measure of favor with his father again. And the father cuts him off. He has no interest in this son's apology. He has no interest in this transactional game that the son is playing. The son was sure that when he first asked his father for his inheritance, the father gave it to him on the basis of his rights, but it turns out that was not the case. 
The father was never interacting with the son in a transactional way. He gave the inheritance freely to his son at the outset of this parable, and here he gives this celebration again freely to his son. He does not treat his son as he deserves. There is no exchange of good repenting for celebration here. That transactional mindset is trampled under the feet of the indiscriminate love and generosity of the Father. I want you to see this here. The Father has no interest whatsoever in the Son's apology. It's as though he doesn't even hear it. He doesn't let the Son even finish. He has no interest in what the Son has to offer because the Son has nothing to offer. The Father actually says of his Son in this very text, he was dead. Dead people have nothing to offer. The Father is not getting into business with someone who has a miserly bit of merit left and therefore can eke out a miserly life in servants' quarters, eating servants' food. The Father is not operating according to what is deserved. In fact, the complete lack of anything to offer is, in fact, the only thing here that this Son has that would qualify him for what the Father gives. The Father lavishes resurrection on his dead Son. That's what's happening in this collision. This is a collision between death and resurrection. The son's transactional way of living, the son's attempts to live to his own merits and get what he deserves out of life has led him into the pit of despair, the pit of death. And it turns out that that very death, that empty-handedness, is the very thing that qualifies him in the eyes of the Father for celebration. Dead people are the only people qualified for resurrection. People who still have a little bit of life left, people who still have some merit to play with, people who are not quite yet corpses, who are still fighting, they're not candidates for resurrection. Resurrection only is offered to corpses, to those who are all the way dead. This just came to mind last night. Princess Bride, movie in the park. He's only mostly dead. (laughs) People who are mostly dead, they go to Mad Max. They get a miracle. Have fun storming the castle. It's people who are always, always dead, all the way dead, who qualify resurrection. The father is treating his son as one who is completely dead, and he's offering him full-bodied resurrection, real life. The second collision is slightly more tragic. It happens outside of the party. The collision between the father and his older son 
This older son, he has the same transactional mindset as his brother. And that transactional mindset leads him to refuse to come into the party. Because this party that his father is throwing is a party with no basis in transaction, a party with no basis in merit. It's an undeserved party. It's a grace party. It's a forgiveness party. It's a party that the doors are thrown open to whomever may come. Dead people are welcome. This party is a direct affront to the entire life of the older brother. The older brother has spent every moment of his adult waking life seeking to earn his father's approval, seeking to distinguish himself, seeking to make something of himself. He's built quite an identity as a good little boy. And so this indiscriminate generosity of this party undermines all that it is that he's lived for. His very purpose for being has been undone. And he's repulsed by this resurrection party. He doesn't need resurrection, so he thinks. He has plenty of life on his own. Thank you very much. And so then we have this second collision where the father comes out from the party and pleads with his older son to come in. And he offers him this reminder. He says, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Do you hear what the father says? He says, With me, son, you have never earned a dime. With me, you cannot. You cannot earn what has already been given from your very birth. All that I have is yours. I live to lavish you with my extravagant, indiscriminate generosity. Why are you spending your time trying to earn favor that you already have? You can't do that. It's already been given. The Father says, come inside. Father says, come inside to his son. He says, come inside to us all. The doors of the party have been thrown wide open. Your successes have earned you nothing. Your failures have only qualified you for resurrection. Don't go on gripping your transactional way so tightly that you refuse the free and open invitation into the divine and fitting celebration of God. This is, in fact, the only celebration that is fitting for our lives. It's an unearned one. The only celebration fitting for our lives is one where none of the festivities could be mistaken for repayment. The only fitting celebration for our lives is one that we shouldn't really be at. One that we are only qualified for because we bring nothing to the table. It's the kind of celebration where dead people dance. It's open to us all. Let's pray. Father, We thank you. 
We thank you for your indiscriminate generosity to your children. We thank you for the way that you entreat us, that you meet us even in our transactional mindset, that you send your spirit to undo us, to call us home, to lead us into life, new life in you, to set us free from clinging to that old false life, the shreds and scraps that we've managed to put together on our own. Pray that for our church, that we would be a church that lives in the freedom of that forgiveness, that lives in light of our empty-handedness, both with you and one another, that we'd receive that good invitation from you and offer it to those around us, that we would let go of the resentments that enslave us, even as you have let go of every right you have to stand against us. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.